welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We're coming to you from a different location today, so if my audio is sounds different, I apologize. My basement, Tammy, was flooded in the Northern California <sighs> storms so last sorry. week. Yeah, so the uh, general cave of like weird sound tiles and stuff that I had created. Yeah. It, it didn't go underwater. It was like a small amount of okay. flooding. But it pooled right in the area where all my electronic stuff, oh my stuff was. <laughs> Wait, so did, is that all sorts stuff of stuff is blown up. No, a lot of it's gone. Oh. But oh, it no. wasn't too much in terms of damage, like the computer, the microphone, everything. None of that was damaged. But basically okay. every every power source, you know, like every little power supply, that's all done. Oh, that's all gosh. toast. And so I've been <laughs> spending the last couple of days on Google trying to find like, you know, used power supplies for all these things. Because oh, buying them new is like outrageously expensive, you know. Like you have no idea how much a stupid like monitor power supply like a hundred and you know 170 watt or something like that type of thing costs i mean it's outrageous it's like (laughs) a third of the price of the stupid monitor you know and so um yeah i've been you guys have been scavenging it's been relentless the storms out there like have you seen other damage to your house and what's going on in your neighborhood generally oh it's horrible i mean you know like first of all a lot of some amount of people died right from having trees fall on them or or in various ways a lot of people had massive damage done to their houses uh you know and more than anything i think it's like a sense of endlessness and people are actually starting to get very depressed out here right now the typical new yorker or east coast person is gonna be like oh yeah you know you finally had a little bit of rain like this has been going on since november right um and all sorts of things have been affected by it all sorts of things have been canceled like basically life hasn't return to any type of normalcy Mm. and it sucks there's no other way to put it like you know we've long past gone the this is good for the drought type of place at least most people have maybe there's some really intense drought heads who are just like it's gonna storm again you know (laughs) but i don't i personally don't know anyone Um, even though i know a lot of environmentally aware people like i don't know a single person who's just like well at least like i don't know you know like and yeah there's floods there's uh everything like that so uh it's been pretty bad uh and it's strange because it's very unpredictable um we have another one coming tonight right and like really well it could just be like the last one or it could be less or it could be more who knows you know it just depends if it if like it basically becomes a bomb at some point, you know, it's like, these terms are so weird. (laughs) I'm glad you raised the mental health stuff though, because I do feel like it's, yeah, it is affecting people a lot and probably people aren't talking about that stuff as much. Yeah. People are just very testy. I will just put it that way. Gotcha. (laughs) Um, And I think that, uh, I mean, any type of prolonged period indoors is difficult. Exactly. But, uh, you know, for like it started in November, like that's right. What, I know. That's the craziest part about it all. It's just like it's it's been months and months of these nonstop storms. And um, it's very annoying. Mm-hmm. So uh, where are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm at my parents house and I'm I'm basically over COVID now. So I'm doing a lot better. And it's really nice to be in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know. It's kind of normal Pacific Northwest stuff. The weather here is nice and, you know, kind of rainy. Yeah, I see. Is this your childhood bedroom? I see a koala, stuffed koala, and I believe a copy of that <laughs> Iliad behind No, <laughs> I didn't. My parents yeah. moved into this house after I left home, so it's, like, unfamiliar. But um, <laughs> it's been nice. Yeah, here. the uh, so we have a, I don't know, we have a great episode today, right, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's really good. Um, yeah, why don't you introduce the, who, who is this oh, person sure. that we talked to today? Yeah. So Brace Covert is a friend of the pod and she's really dedicated herself to reporting on child care and elder care and care work in general in the United States and occasionally um, with some comparative angles for, I don't know, maybe the better part of a decade now. And so I consider her really the authority on this. And I know Jay, you now with two kids and Bryce with one kid, like obviously this is personal. I know like in our um, listenership, we have a lot of parents who are struggling with child care. So um, yeah, it was really good to be able to talk to her and to get to understand a little bit more about why nothing has changed on the childcare front and, um, you know, how we might be able to make some improvements moving forward out of the pandemic. Are there many parts of American life where one asks, why are things this way? 
right? Um, <laughs> yes. It doesn't seem like it should be this way. Like, you know, for example, homelessness is probably the most intense one that I can think of recently. Yeah. Where people are like, why Why does this exist, right? Um, but I think, though, the one that people who have young kids feel the most intensely themselves and where they spend the most time thinking about it is definitely childcare. Yeah. And um, I don't think anyone... Your average lay person who hasn't spent a decade reporting on these things, including me, right, um, has a very good answer to that question. Uh, it's just sort of like, well, this is how things are and you have to adjust to it, right? Um, and because you are already under the eight ball or behind the eight ball, I don't know what the phrase is. I imagine <laughs> it's behind the eight ball, under the eight ball. <laughs> because you're stressed out with having to take care of a kid you know like you don't really question it much you just scramble right right? it's a perpetual scramble and um once you're out of the scramble you don't think about it anymore right and so Mm -hmm. it means that like the scramblers are always scrambling and the people who aren't scambling are not thinking about it yeah so hard to build a constituency behind policy changes Right. And so that was one of the things we talked to Bryce about. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked to her about a lot more things, uh, including visions for universal options. Right. Um, Yeah. I don't know. It's it seems like we're we're going to be pretty. I I thought it was a great conversation, honestly. Um, Yeah, it was. I I learned a lot. I also felt better about that, somewhat better about the forecast and then somewhat worse about the forecast. Yeah, (laughs) I know. What did you guys do for your first kid for the first few years? For Frankie? Uh, well, uh, we put her in daycare, like group daycare, mm-hmm. infant group daycare. And then she went to preschool. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was in a, when we were in New York, she was in a big group daycare um, that was around the corner from our apartment. Oh, nice. And then when we moved over here to Berkeley, she was already two. So she went to um, a uh, she went to a in-home daycare during during COVID. Mm. I was allowed to stay open. That's right. And okay. then uh, it was like in somebody's house. And then she went to preschool after that once the preschools were gotcha. back open. But uh, yeah, it was it was a struggle, oh, and basically struggle. every day. Every gap you have in that in childcare is a crisis. And, yeah. Uh, for us, we're fortunate enough to be able to afford a lot of different options, but it still feels like a crisis, you know. Totally. Um, and that's one. Of, yeah, that's another thing we talked about with Bryce, which is just that class is an accelerant, and class is a uh, it provides different outcomes and different levels of stress and different options. Um, but it does not, it uh, it does not really anesthetize anyone except the super wealthy, you know, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like people still feel it, right, across the class spectrum, um, and across different incomes, and yeah. that's what makes it such an interesting question to me, right? Because it's not localized, right? It is, there is possibility for universal options when basically like everybody has some version <laughs> of it with varying intensities, right? Right. Um, well, similar to healthcare but you know i don't know <laughs> yeah the more immediate the scramble is more immediate because like you have to go to work right so you need right, somewhere right. to put your child and and as you were saying like even for middle class and upper middle class and somewhat wealthy people if it's not necessarily even a a price issue it's like an availability issue an accessibility issue and then also like you want to get the best education for your kids so also providing getting early childhood educators not just babysitters Right. But even then, like, even, even you have to be really wealthy for it to not be a price issue too, you know? Right. Like you have to be like, I mean, you read those articles about like Fleischman is in trouble, New Jersey parents, right. Who are making 600 grand and they felt kind of, uh, economically restrained because they had two kids who were both going to $65,000 a year, um, private schools. One cannot I mean. feel any sympathy for those people. I do not personally. Yeah, I was nor like, do I think anyone should. Uh-huh. But they're what they're describing from is, their perspective. Yeah, right? descri- what yeah. they're describing is like a, a price. It. They're describing like financial <laughs> pain, right? Yeah. No, I can just be like, listen, it's self-inflicted. 
but they still feel it. (laughs) And it's like proportional, I guess, to their income, right? Like somebody making a tenth of that amount would have like a tenth of the, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You got to make a lot of money to afford $130,000 in private school education for like a seven or a nine-year-old, for example. (laughs) No, I don't sympathize with it at all. I just find it interesting that that even those people are feeling pain. Like obviously everyone wants the best thing for their kid. You know, so. Right, right, right. But you don't, yeah, you can say that and you don't have to also sympathize with them. That's my take on it. Where you're just like, yeah, you want the best thing for your kid, but that thing is bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That thing makes society worse. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so much parent stuff, right? Basically anything, the rule should be that if anything is described, it has to be justified with, I just want the best for my child. <laughs> I know. It's, it's probably true. real. Like I'm trying to think of a single <laughs> inter, uh, example of a program where it's justified by, I just want the best thing for my child. That's not just like, a just a heinously evil program, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I li- oh I'm scanning my, my brain right now. I can't think of a single one. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like really true. it's like basically like I, I don't know. It's, it's the private school education, yeah. right? Um, it's like <laughs> I mean, like the like stuff like uh, you know, I don't know. Like I, I always go back to like how swim lessons here are done, you know, and like how parents have basically rigged it so it can't ever be a lottery system to sign up for swim lesson slots. Because the busybody parents want to keep the system where it opens up like Ticketmaster and you just flood it in because they're the only ones that at like 2 p.m. on a Wednesday (laughs) have the bandwidth to do it. And they have a fucking cartel, you know? And if you ask them about it, they'll be like, I just want the best for my kid. And just like, your kid is not even good at sports, you know? (laughs) Like once they learn to, once they learn to swim and don't drown, like, you don't even need swim lessons anymore because what's the fucking point? Just stop it with this. I just want the best for my kids. That's a very good rule. I'm glad we came up with that, right? It's definitely the thing that, like, all of the right wing fascist parents say also about, like, restricting kids from seeing, like, normal children's books. And like, right, 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 right. Or going to drag sh- or, like, you know, having yeah, a drag show all within of that state stuff, lines. Like, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. Yeah. I just want the best for my kid. <laughs> just like, no, you don't, you know? You're just an asshole. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, good. All right. We came up with a good rule in the intro here. Um, all right. Uh, well, with further, I think that's the best we're going to do. We're not going to tap that. So, uh, without further ado, here's our conversation with Bryce. Today to talk about crisis in child care, maybe elder care as well if we have time, we have uh, Bryce Covert. She is a reporter in residence at the Omidyar Network and a contributing writer at The Nation. Um, somebody who has covered this really for a number of years and, and the work goes back uh, pre-pandemic and then assesses the pandemic and then tries to figure out where we are right now. We still don't really have a good term to describe it. Some people would say still in the midst of a raging pandemic. I'm just like, okay, well, <laughs> yes, maybe, but we have to figure out something to acknowledge that most people have moved on, even if maybe they shouldn't, you know? Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't know, I found this all to be really interesting because as we are, the genesis of this was that Tammy and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago in reference to Korea, because I had talked to a friend in Korea who told me that his kid's childcare was $40 a month to pay, for, or no, $40 a year to pay oh for. Oh my God, a year? Pay, oh yeah, my God. Yeah, to pay for a uniform, basically. Oh, oh I see. Everything else is free. Is free. <laughs> I was going to say, why bother charging like $40? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. That's my cat in the background. Um, Korea, between 2000, I think in 2017 started a program, um, a universal experiment, and then they got rid of it just basically because people had enough cheap options and you know it wasn't that people it was just basically like i don't know it's already pretty cheap and we would like to have a little bit more choice and um yeah so we're going to talk about all this so welcome bryce uh thank you for coming on yeah thank you guys for having me on the first thing i want to talk about was just that you know we uh you wrote recently and i just want to give a sense of all this to people which is uh just the context of it which is that 
Right now in the childcare sector, right, we have an economy that's recover that sort of has very strong job reports, right? And depending on who you are, that's either good or bad news. Like I have some friends who are all bankers. I know these people from college or from fantasy sports, and they're just like, the jobs report was good again. God damn it. I know. <laughs> for most people, you want high unemployment. Yeah, it's good news. <laughs> um, but in the childcare sector, you're right that um, this sector is still lagging. There were 57,600 fewer childcare workers in January of this year than in February of 2020. Even as the number of children needing care grew, childcare employment is 5.5% lower than it was before many centers closed in February 2020 and others scrambled to stay open for the children of essential workers. The strain proved too much for many providers. According to Child Care Aware of America, a nonprofit research organization that advocates for child care investment, from December 2019 to March 2021, nearly 16,000 centers or family-based programs shuttered about 10% of the pre-pandemic supply. So these numbers, you know, are concerning and large. But like, what is it like on the ground? You know, like what you've seen in your reporting, because I think like, you know, like what, what, what is happening within these centers right now and how big is the panic? Yeah, it's, um, it's really pretty bad on the ground. I mean, obviously, um, if you've paid attention to the sector for any length of time, things were not good before the pandemic. Um, in this country, the economics and the finances just don't make a lot of sense. So centers are always struggling to stay open. Um, but I think I've never really heard the level of panic among childcare providers that I have recently. Mm. Um, right now, what they're really struggling with is staffing. Um, they just had so many people leave during the closures and during the health scares. Um, childcare workers had an elevated COVID death rate compared to teachers. Um, a lot of them were risking their lives. And many people said, I'm not going to keep risking my life for minimum wage pay. Um, and at the same time, you know, it is a really strong labor market right now, at least for now. And that means that people, that workers have a lot of choices and it's really hard to convince people to come, you know, wipe no noses and wipe butts for less than you can get at Walmart or Target. I mean, literally providers constantly tell me I lost someone to an Amazon warehouse. I lost someone to a Walmart job. I lost someone to McDonald's because they can't pay as much as those places are now paying in a tight labor market. They just don't, they don't have any extra to throw at people. There is no money. Um, and they tend to pay right or like maybe a little bit above minimum wage. So mm. they can't uh, hold on to people and they also can't get new people. Um, you know, someone told me at one point I posted a job and had all these people apply and no one ever showed up for interviews. Like, I just can't get anyone to start working for me. And of course, in childcare too, you don't want just anyone. You can't, right. you know, there's licensing requirements. Um, you also want like good providers, you know, people are entrusting their children with you. So what that's meant is that um, many are contemplating just closing. There has been some federal relief money that I think has floated people for a while, but that's going to be coming to an end fairly soon. And in the meantime, even with the federal relief money, a lot of them have struggled to keep classrooms open. Um, and to, they definitely aren't taking all the children that they could. You know, a lot of them have like crazy long wait lists. And what that means is on the other side for families, those people on that wait list need that care. And without it, you know, I, I don't really know what people are doing. I think people are piecing things together. You know, remote work isn't really a great solution if your children are running around inside your house. Um, so I think families are really left in a difficult position right now and providers would love to serve them and just like can't make it work. Hmm. And is what you're saying applying both to childcare centers, like ones that are outside of the home and in-home childcare centers? I hear it from both. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think the economics are different in many ways between like a real formal center and someone who's doing it out of their home a little bit more informally, but no, neither can hold on to people yeah. right now. Um, so yeah, they're, they're all sort of in the same boat, I think. Yeah, we have like, uh, I mean, just from talking to other parents, right? Um, across really, you know, across different types of professions, different types of salary ranges, this is still the number one thing that people talk about. Mm -hmm. It's been three years now of, of people talking about it. As you pointed out, this crisis began before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic sort of made everyone, you know, it obviously accelerated the awareness of it to people. And also what you said, like the 
people, even people who could afford to work remotely were finding it basically impossible if they have kids running around and screaming in the background, but also just like immensely stressful, like from a life perspective, like I, I can attest to that. Like, I mean, it was, you know, some of the most, like, I don't know how I'm going to get through oh, these moments of my life, you know? <laughs> and, um, what's interesting, I think one of the things that you point out is that like, basically everyone has decided to just be like, oh yeah, you know, that was pretty bad. A whole bunch of people left work, especially women, right? Especially mothers left the workforce. I think, I think, uh, you, you pointed out that it's a calculated to be about $122 billion cost to the economy, right? To have this sort of lagging childcare thing. And yet, like, we don't, uh, is there any, like, sort of plan out of it? Like, is there anything where people are like, oh, yeah, you know, that happened. That was bad. Let's have it not happen again, you know? Like, because <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like almost a visceral thing for people where it's not, and it's not just like, it's not something that's limited to any race or or class distinction yeah. or anything, you know, like maybe the super wealthy, you know, we're like, oh right. yeah, nothing changed, but that's like the super wealthy, you know, right. like upper middle class people also were just like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> like, what are we going right. to do? It's so like, like 20% yeah, right, of people in some cases, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. You have to be very, very wealthy to not be touched by the childcare crisis, yeah. I think. Um, so that's nice for them. But for the rest of us, I think people really are panicking. Um, yeah. I mean, so basically what happened is the American Rescue Plan, um, which Democrats passed and Biden signed, um, included really significant funding. Um, I think the biggest thing it did was it offered these stabilization grants and to do what it sounds like. It, it was money that states were supposed to give directly to providers to keep them open. Um, and I think and there's evidence that it really did do that. And then there was some other sort of more discretionary funding that states could use to do various other things. Um, the idea at the time was that that would then be followed by Build Back Better, which would have like really in robust investments in childcare and early education. And so that money was supposed to tide the sector over until we were going to do the real investment. Um, that is mm -hmm. not happening. And there is no real chance right now that Congress does anything at all like that. Um, there was an increase in the block grant that goes to states for childcare at the end of last year in the appropriations bill, which is not nothing. And I was just talking to someone who pointed out that it was actually like the biggest increase we've ever seen. And somehow it, it, oh, wow. it, it got a little lost, I think in part because the sector is in such free fall that I think it's important, but definitely not enough. Um, so no, mm. I don't think anyone has any real plan to get us out of this hole. Um, states are trying, certainly. I think, you know, there's like Connecticut has been trying to put its own money towards this, various other states. New Mexico has found some oil and gas revenues to dedicate to the sector. But it's hard. States have limited money and can only do so much on their own. Uh, so, and they cannot make up this shortfall by themselves. This would have to be federal investment if we were going to plug the hole. Um, so I don't uh, personally see much coming to save the sector. And my sense of what's happening right now, you know, in the earlier part of the pandemic, a lot of people just left work, um, particularly women, either left or were forced out of work by the child care crisis. Um, they have returned to work and I think are technically sort of on paper employed, but I think what they're doing is getting disrupted constantly. So like, you have a job, but now I needed to take a week off because my kid is homesick or my childcare provider is like struggling to keep, like no one showed up to work at my childcare yeah. provider this week. So I guess I'll try to figure out how to work remotely. Um, you know, the number of people who say that their work has been disrupted by childcare was at the highest level ever in October and has stayed very elevated throughout mm -hmm. this time. Um, so people are just constantly trying to absorb this shock, I think. Um, and what I fear is, when the federal pandemic relief funds run out, do we start to see waves of closures that really pull the rug even further out from under people? Mm. Right. It's such a foundational thing, right? The rug pull thing idea is correct because once that fails, then everything else fails, you know, if mm -hmm. within any type of local economy, especially if it becomes localized, which I imagine it will be, right? Like there are some places that'll be a little bit more robust and able to weather this than others. But um, I don't know, like maybe New York City will be like, you know, a big city will be OK. But 
there are certainly suburban or exurban or rural communities where, you know, you close two centers and it's over, yeah. right? Like all the kids go there. And um, mostly, do you think this is a wage issue? Like, do you think it is like a change in culture issue? Like, do you think, like, what do you think is behind this? Because um, this a similar thing is obviously happening in elder care, right? Like people who are nursing assistants, basically, who are making Definitely. about, you know, minimum wage jobs during the pandemic, we're like, no, I'm not going to go in and, you know, basically watch everyone die in here if I bring COVID in. And also, I didn't really like this job in the first place because it's <laughs> difficult. Um, and you find people, of course, there are people in both industries where this is their passion. They want to help people. And for whatever reason, like, you know, they, maybe this is their entry into that type of thing. But also, you can't build an entire industry yeah. <laughs> just on like, you know, like people are like, this is my passion. Right? There's no, there's no industry like that. So yeah, just like, is, is this primarily a wage issue or is this something where like care industries are, are seeing some sort of cultural shift here? Well, I think it's it's both. I mean, the two things are just so inextricably linked. I mean, we do keep trying to create whole sectors that run on people being passionate. I mean, that's the care <laughs> sector, right? And it includes education. Journalism. Teacher- yeah. Well, <laughs> God bless us on our low wages. Yeah. But you know, we like we underpay teachers. We really underpay childcare workers, even compared to teachers. The people in our nursing homes, the people who care for people at home when they get older or when they're disabled are all so underpaid. And basically we ask them, like you said, to do this work because they care about it and are passionate about it and just sort of run off of that. Um, And I do think the pandemic helped expose how fragile that is and how unsustainable a system that is when people said, no, I'm just not going to do that. No, thank you. Um, And we haven't really clawed our way back from that. But again, Mm -hmm. there's no real serious talk about changing it so that it doesn't work that way anymore. I mean, the reason we underpay all these professions is they're mostly, it's work mostly done by women, mostly women of color. And there's just assumption, this assumption that they'll just keep doing it because they care and because that's what women do. Um, right. I don't, I don't know that that's true anymore, especially again, if you can go to target and get $18 an hour starting to yeah. stock shelves why would you not do that instead of coming and, you know, bathing someone and lifting someone and feeding someone or, you know, in the case of childcare, again, you know, like exposing yourself to so many different viruses and changing diapers and, you know, dealing with tantrums. Like this is hard, important work. And we're asking people to do it for very little again, because we're hoping that they'll just do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a fascinating thing. Like, remember when Fight for 15 first started about a decade ago, Mm -hmm. and it was really concentrated on fast food. And then at some point, I think because of the dynamics of like the union that was mostly behind it, the the home care workers and child Mm -hmm. care workers kind of hopped onto it. But through this period of like increased worker activity and unionization, we've seen the fast food sector, warehouse workers, different low wage sectors, like actually build a significant amount of political momentum behind their cause. Like for instance, in California, they just passed this fast food Mm -hmm. thing that kind of looks like sectoral bargaining. You know, there's different examples of this. And yet like through that entire period, somehow early education, child care, in-home care has kind of like not had that. And so it's this incredibly paradoxical thing where, I mean, you know, we kind of know the reasons why, but where it's the issue that like, as you guys were saying, as parents, like all your friends, all of our friends, that's like their obsession. That's like the thing that's dominant in their lives. And yet as a kind of like industry, it has so little kind of power and say, Um, I'm wondering, yeah, like if you guys have thoughts on that and, you know, what sorts of things could be done to kind of have that industrial voice be stronger. Yeah, I I think you're absolutely right on all of those points. Um, I will say, you know, some there were childcare workers in California who made who have made some strides towards like fifteen dollars an hour mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, one dynamic here though is that the is the finances behind all of this. You know, yeah. well, McDonald's and Target have the profits to throw at this problem. They haven't historically, right? But in the, with the theoretically, yeah, yeah <laughs> with that movement and with the tight labor market, they are starting to throw mm-hmm. that money. Childcare okay. providers don't have any funding because yeah. they are running off of what they can expect parents to pay out of pocket. And right. it's not, it does not cover their costs. Like parents can't afford to pay what it takes to care for a child, but 
they're expected to run off just that. I mean, very few families get subsidies from the government. I mean, can you imagine if we were each on the hook for financing K through 12 education? Um, yeah. It's a lot of money <laughs> that we are not personally each and every one of us individually responsible for as parents. Um, so that's just, mm-hmm. uh, a, you know, until we treat it more like public education, the money isn't there. You know, you really need the government to be in there defraying the cost so that we're treating these providers well and paying them what they deserve without squeezing every last drop out of parents who can barely afford it. Um, and that's just not the way we run it in this country. Mm. Is the industry, how is the industry set up generally? Because, um, you know, with a, like, let's compare it to elder care, where I do feel like given that um, so many SNFs and, um, you know, ALS are, the, whatever, the nursing homes generally are chains, right? Large chains and their owners are billionaires. And, yeah. Their owners are generally the type of, they're like what Mike Davis called like petty billionaires, right? Like they're like billionaires, but they're not super rich. But they're, those people have like <laughs> immense political influence because <laughs> I don't know, but like, you know, maybe no, they're just bad. like, just they, they still have some ambition left. But, um, and so you can say this gigantic chain for-profit industry should pay its workers more, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like that's the, that's the case with childcare, right? Like you don't have these large corporations or chains that are doing it it generally is like one it's like one provider is running their own business maybe they have four locations or something like that right like that's like the biggest that i saw at least in new york city right like but yeah it's not like you have something that's like a nationwide chain that tons and tons of kids are taking their kids to. is that is that right like or am i just like in a bubble here no that's mostly right there are national chains and they've been like cleaning up the scraps in the pandemic um mm. you know bright horizons i think kinder care is one there's a yeah, couple of them yeah. it was a really great new york times article by dana goldstein about how they're um like backed by private equity and trying to gobble up the market and like i guess kind of profitable and sort of throwing that money at congress they helped scuttle actually they were involved in scuttling the build back better investment oh, wow. in the sector um but <laughs> i would say even even so um they are more the anomaly. Most people, when they're getting childcare for their children, are going to the most mom and pop of shops. Like you said, like, I mean, a lot of people, it's like one or two women in their home and they're, you know, they use a room right, in their home right. and that's the childcare. Mm-hmm. There are some, you know, they're definitely centers, but it's, I don't think it's common for them to have lots of different locations and they're not making very much money. They just really aren't. I mean, I think that's what's really challenging is, you know, for the most part, I'm someone when I write about workers demanding higher wages, who I'm like, yeah, the owners should just pay more, like just give them what they deserve. And um, the workers certainly in childcare deserve more, but there is just not money to pay them. Every provider mm-hmm. I talk to who like runs the business says, I would love to pay them what they're worth. I really wish I could pay them more. Yeah. And there isn't money. And in fact, so these stabilization grants from the American Rescue Plan did allow some providers to pay more. That's what a lot of providers did with the money is give bonuses mm. or even raises. But what sucks for them is that when this money runs out, is a one-time thing. Yeah. The money's going to run out. And then they're going to have to literally say, I'm so sorry, I was paying you 16 bucks an hour, right. but that has to go back to 12 now. Will you please stay? Right, right, right. Like, everyone, at that point, everyone's like, I'm going to go work at Target or wherever. Yeah, right. right. They're just going to hemorrhage even more. <laughs> like, why would you? I mean, even be, if you wanted to stay, it's so insulting to get a, right. <laughs> a decrease in pay and be asked to do the same work. So... Um, they're all staring down a really bad cliff. Um, And I do genuinely believe that most of them would really, if they had the money, pay better. Um, They know that what they pay is not what the work deserves. Hmm. Right. So you have, uh, you know, like uh, in one of the articles that you wrote, I believe this was in the Times opinion section where you wrote about um, the link between public school and child care, right? And um, this is something, I, I find this to be very, compelling myself just because uh i as somebody who writes a lot about education i kind of have a sense of what things are popular and what things are not popular you know and um and i'm just talking broadly about public education here i'm not talking about like some distinction between charter schools or whatever right like just like free free schools you can send your kids to that are given you know that are funded in some part by the state right Mm -hmm. so you write the answer is not that we must drag K through 12 education down to child's care level to say that teachers are merely babysitters who deserve to make barely over minimum wage and that parents should be forced to 
pay for school themselves? The answer is to make childcare more like public school. What Howard County is doing might seem strange at first glance, but in fact, school districts offering childcare for school-aged children could lead us to the right place, right? So you're, in, in crafting this argument, you sort of make this argument that basically everybody likes public school, right? Like, um, and I think that's true. Like, you know, like maybe some people don't, but it's not like, you know, like it's not like you could go to like a bunch of Republicans and say like, hey, what if we stop the public school in your city? They'd be like, wait, why? You know, um, some of them might, right? Some of them might say we should have a choice of the charter, but no one's going to be like, no, you know, everyone should have to pay for everything, right? Like that makes no sense. Nobody would be into that. Um, like, where, where are we with this? Because we do have programs um, like this, right? So, you know, here in California, we have universal pre-K. We're going to go to universal 3K pretty soon. So that takes two of the years out, right, where the kids go to uh, – they, yeah. they actually go to the elementary school and they, they, they sort of occupy an elementary school. Where I live here in Berkeley – we can do that because we all of our schools are under enrolled, right? And so there is space for the for for mm-hmm. more kids. Um, but some places, I imagine, they'll have to build like external buildings or something like that. But that there are going to be places where uh, where the state is kind of doing some of this. But like, first of all, like how expansive is, Jay, is that, your vision of that? Three K is is statewide. Sorry, I don't know, but. Okay. Um, how expansive of your vision of this? Like, when do you think it should start? And like, what, what should states do to like sort of set this up? Well, my vision is quite expansive. I think it should be zero through grade 12. Um, you know, <laughs> all the research shows that babies' brains are developing rapidly and that those early months and years are so critically important to the way a child develops. Um, also, we know that parents are going back to work when their babies are four weeks, six weeks old. Um, so they should have a good place that they can find and afford to send their child when they need to do that. You know, what that should look like locally and, you know, for a six-month-old versus a three-year-old, I think will really differ. And um, universal preschool for four-year-olds and then for three-year-olds, I think, has been a really good way to start sort of getting people used to what that can and should look like. Um, we mm-hmm. have that in New York City here where I live. Um, and my daughter's going to hopefully be going to Universal 4K next year. And it's so exciting to have to not face that cost. But it's it was also amazing to enter this system where it was like, here are your options and go tour the school and decide which school you like. And then she's going to go, like you were saying, to a school and have this like very defined experience. Whereas childcare, it's like, you don't even know where to look to find the options, mm-hmm. let alone right. figure out how to evaluate them. So, and again, You know, it's not to say that teachers are just babysitters. Um, They are doing so much more, but so are childcare providers. And teachers really bristle at the idea that what they're doing is providing childcare. And I think that is because they don't want to be dragged down to the level of babysitter and childcare (laughs) provider, which I completely understand. But that is part of what they are doing. And I think the pandemic made that just so super crystal clear that when families didn't have didn't have school to send their children to their children were home with them while they were trying to work like that was just very obvious that that is an important service that school provides and so if we talk about it that way it leads us to some really important solutions again it leads to childcare looking more like school where it's centralized and formalized and free um, and then it also leads us to say, well, so why does the school day end at two thirty, and then parents are just expected to figure out the rest? Um, why don't we have any affordable quality options that are super easy to find for the summer? Um, I just went through mm-hmm. this myself. It's my first summer facing. Oh my god, camp! Uh, oh, did camp you have to do a the... camp sign up? Yeah, what do you guys do? Yep. Yo, <laughs> camp sign up is the wildest thing in the world. It's it... like I, I think. I, my, I mean, my wife and I, between us, probably spent what? How long? Did, how much time did you spend, Bryce? Because oh my god, wanna, like, hours <laughs> searching. And again, yeah. it's like you're searching, you're evaluating. And then what's wild about camp is that, at least where I am, I was not able to find a single camp that actually covered the entire summer gap. I have. Oh no 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 no! Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, and I, I like, I knew all of this. I've written about all of this, but I was like, I cannot believe that that is actually mm. true. That there are just weeks of the summer where it's like, sorry, there's nothing, um, and also it's very expensive. Like, I wasn't even looking at prices, honestly. I was like, I will throw money at this problem because <laughs> I have to keep working. 
And even so, even so, and like, it's also just, it's very expensive. I like tried not to look at it, but it's like very, very expensive. Um, it's just- yeah, the average, I would say the average here of people here in Berkeley, of kids, my parents, my kids age, they're going to be at like five to nine different camps this summer. And they're going to spend somewhere between like four and $10,000 on those camps. I mean, it is wild. Now, obviously, some of those people are very, you know, but it doesn't like it doesn't matter how rich you are. Like if even if the cost doesn't bother you, the scramble and the desperation and the feeling that like there is nothing out there unless I am a shit, you know, like and I basically line up right at the second of every single sign up and take every <laughs> single spot. That's what you have to do. It's like a and um, like getting concert tickets a, or something. It, yeah, exactly. I was going like to almost as bad other as Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. <laughs> yeah, it's like other than Taylor Swift concerts, it's the only time that people who are this wealthy have to struggle, right? <laughs> and that's that, like that's and so as a result, is literally the only topic of conversation, right? For months, right? Is the, I, I talk about it all the time. And I am not blaming the people who are talking about it because guess who also talks about it all the time? Me. You know? So like, it's like it is incredible. And it brings up this question that I've always had, which is just that like, listen, this is so broadly universal. You know, like it and it also is wealthy, powerful people who also feel the crunch, right? Not super wealthy, but like, you know, wealthy enough. And like, why is this not so politically central at this point? Right. Like, I mean, like I this is not to denigrate fast food workers or anything like that. But I think that there is like a thing where the public will say, oh, well, you know, these, this is like a fast food job or something like that. Right. Um, I don't think they would feel that way with the people who are taking care of their kids, right? In some ways, they're much more sympathetic, even though both deserve higher wages, right? Um, so, like, wh- why do you think it isn't sort of more politically central than it is right now? Or is it, and am I just, like, missing something? No, you're not missing something. Um, I get asked this question all the time. I actually wrote a piece for Lux Magazine a couple years ago, like, trying to explore this question. I think probably the biggest answer is that while this is extremely widespread and up and down the income scale, it is very time limited and it hits people when they have the least bandwidth to get organized and do something about it, particularly when it's most acute. When your kids are little, like really tiny, um, I mean, first of all, when they're a baby, you're not sleeping at all. And then, you know, you're constantly struggling to balance caring for them all the time and doing your job. Um, And then as that starts to ease, so does finding childcare. You know, you get to put them in public education and then right. you're just dealing with aftercare and, and summers. And then they get a little older and maybe you don't even have to deal with the summer anymore. Maybe they get a job, you know, and it just, it gets easier and easier. And then you can say, okay, phew, I'm done with it. Now I get to live my life. Um, so having like a durable, consistent political constituency that has the time and bandwidth to do something about it is really hard. I think it's like a legitimately difficult challenge for organizers. Mm. And I think there's some really cool organizing going on trying to get past that. Um, I, in my, the article I wrote, I wrote about the effort um, in, around Oregon to pass universal preschool um, by a ballot measure. And they did some really cool organizing where they were like bringing in parents, doing Zoom meetings so parents could do it after the kids went to sleep and, you know, all this cool stuff. But it is hard. Um, and then, you know, you also come up against just the way society views again care work and also it always gets into questions of like women's role in the in society and the economy there are plenty of people who still believe that the best thing for a kid and the best thing for a woman is for her to stay home full-time with that kid until they're of an age where it's not a problem anymore um Mm -hmm. so yeah it's just a tricky issue but it is i do think it is one genuinely where people the public agrees that we're doing it wrong and would like to see public investment and have this be treated as a public good by the government. Um, It's just like getting that to be a political imperative is difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. Got it. In terms of the stuff that has happened during the pandemic, like the increase in childcare subsidies and things like that, like how well did those work? Because I hear you guys talking about like, you know, 4K, universal 4K, 3K, and, 
you know, kind of if we went all the way down to zero, like maybe that's one way of getting at it. Maybe this other way is through child care tax credit or child care subsidies. Um, what are some, what do we know about like the interventions that have been tried recently? You know, I, I think the consensus is that states have done really great stuff in the pandemic and it has worked well. I don't think we're at a place where we have any sort of like robust research on what's been done. And I actually, it's unclear if it's going to happen. I was, um, I'm also, I'm looking into sort of what states have been doing um, with a lot of the pandemic funding, especially the discretionary funding. And uh-huh. someone was telling me that a lot of states don't even have um, someone designated to evaluate what's been going on because that's an mm. extra cost. And if you're not required know, to yeah. do it. So I'm hoping that both parents have gotten a taste of, for example, most families in a state being eligible for a childcare subsidy, which is something that some states yeah. have done in the pandemic and have liked it and will now say, wait, this is something we shouldn't get rid of. Um, and that also it will provide, even if it's more of an anecdotal like evidence base for when mm-hmm. we are in a different political moment and there's some interest in, in investing in childcare that will show what, what that can look like. Um, but I don't know that we're going to have a great light bulb moment because it's all been very ad hoc. I mean, Mm -hmm. as all the pandemic programs were very ad hoc, not necessarily a focus on figuring out what worked and what didn't. And then it just kind of disappears and we go back to normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The best childcare subsidy that you can give is expanding universal care, right? Like, um, I mean, even wealthy people I know when they're kid, like, cause you know, every universal pre-K or TK or, whatever, 3K has a cutoff date, right? Mm-hmm. And like, there is like such relief when the parents see that their kids are on the right <laughs> side of the cutoff date. Because for some of them, they're getting like a 70% raise, you know, because all their money was going to paying for childcare and now it doesn't have to be. And so it's like, you know, it is, like that's the best possible subsidy like um, out there. Like I was devastated that our kid was qualify for pre-K. Oh like, no. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, now I have to pay another year. Um, look, some parents opt out of it or whatever, and there's stu- you know, sort of different studies on the efficacy of pre-K. But I have, most parents I know are just like, they're four years old. Who cares? You know, like they're going to be around their friends. They're going to play outside. It's going to be great. And uh, I don't really care about this study that says that, you know, kids who are not in pre-K do 14 or like 4% better on this stupid test that I don't even believe in, you know, when they're in, <laughs> in seventh grade, you know, like who cares? <laughs> you know, like, you know, will also help this child if I don't have to pay $25,000 a year out of my like $70,000 a year salary or something like that, whatever it is, right? Like that's much more helpful for those kids. And so right. um, I think that would be the best subsidy. So you argue yeah. for this, right? You say that between 1943 and 1946, the public, the country did have a publicly funded universal child care system built on the idea that women needed to leave the home to keep America running. Obviously, this was during the war, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then it just got kind of scrapped, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what would that what what would this sort of universal um, child care system look like in the United States? I know you, I asked you a similar question before about how expansive it is, but like. Yeah. And what does it look like? Is it like you have like one school that's like basically zero to five, you have like maybe a zero to five school and then like a five to, you know, then basic traditional elementary school. Like, well, what, what do you think this looks like? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yeah, what you were referencing um, during World War Two was the Lanham Act. That was a really great system. Um, you know, we have a more robust, I guess, preschool system now. So I think it makes some sense to say, okay, we're going to do sort of 3K and 4K in a schoolish environment. And then maybe below that, we have more of a care setting. Um, although, again, like, I don't want to fall into, you know, one is doing babysitting, one is doing school. But maybe it looks yeah. more structured for three-year-olds old and up and more sort of one-on-one care, play-based for younger um, and, you know, another model we can look to that was supposed to happen and failed was in 1971, when we were going to have universal child care when both the House and the Senate passed a comprehensive universal child care bill that Nixon vetoed. The idea was that the money, the, the federal government would foot the bill, and then it would send the money, not just to states, importantly, but also to like localities and counties to decide, okay, how do we do this? Like, what's best for us? Um, which is a little bit how funding works now, but obviously on a very different scale. Um, important you don't just send it to states because some states will just um, be very racist with it, basically. Um, so if you also have <laughs> counties, they can really focus on the needs. Um, and then they build them out. And I think it's really important that 
you do think about like physically building it out. Like you were saying, you know, because Oakland schools mm. are underfunded or underenrolled, you have those spaces, you know, New York city, um, struggled with finding the spaces for all the kids. It took years to really get to a place where the 4k system here really does mm-hmm. truly have enough space for everybody because they had to build that out and hire the teachers and yeah. literally have the classrooms. Um, mm-hmm. I think we also, New York city are an example of why it doesn't work though. If it's not universal here, 4k is universal and it's guaranteed. And mm-hmm. um, I can say from personal experience, the difference between 3k, which is not yet universal and therefore not guaranteed and far more ad hoc and 4k is like night and day. Um, the 3k, you know, basically most families I know didn't even bother with 3k because you didn't know if you were going to get a seat. You didn't really know where that seat was going to be. It was very hard to figure out what your options were. Whereas 4k, it's like, you will get a spot and here are the schools that you're guaranteed to go to. And then you can also look at some other schools and decide, I'd rather tell them that I have a preference for this school. And then it's this very sophisticated lottery system. And basically everyone I know is, is going to be part of that universal system, Mm -hmm. Um, which is what this, this social science shows generally when a program is universal, you have like widespread buy-in and widespread support. And then when you're sort of like siphoning people off, it's just, it's like, Oh, that's for them. That's not for me. Um, So I think it's just absolutely true with these systems for preschool and for childcare. If we don't have it in a universal fashion, um, it becomes stigmatized and it becomes underfunded and, and neglected. Mm-hmm. Right. The second it's not universal, it becomes basically uh, middle class, upper middle class parents think just go to a private option almost immediately, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the second that it's universal, then the social stigma goes away and there's actually social pressure to use it. Um, and uh, I've, I've read studies about that, too. Like, you know, like I'm generally skeptical about any type of study around that type of not, you know, not gen, but just of studies, period. You know, like my <laughs> scientific inquiry is always <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But like, um, but that seems just so obvious. Right. Like um, that's sort of the history of American education, basically. Right. Which is the second that there is an option, then some people will take that option to exclude other people, right? For and sure. the second where it's universal, it will be used universally. Um, well, you can see that so clearly like in Medicaid and Medicare and it's like right. the best argument against means testing Medicare, right? It's mm-hmm. just this phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I was curious, Bryce, if you have thoughts on this recent thing under the CHIPS Act. Mm-hmm. So part of um, Biden's infrastructure package obviously was to put like $39 billion towards semiconductor manufacturing in the States. And um, it's going to go to like a mix of foreign and domestic firms here. But um, Gina Raimondo in the Commerce Department recently is adding this thing on top, which would be um, a childcare requirement um, that the firms that get this money would have to provide childcare in some form or a subsidy or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you think that's going to work? I feel like there's probably international examples of this sort of thing. And I don't, you know, it's different from the universal thing, but it seems like a good step. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, I think it's one of those things where now with Build Back Better dead, like what can be yeah, done? Exactly. <laughs> um, and so it's better to do something than not do something. I think the idea behind it too, is that you know, basically, if you're going to be giving these new infrastructure jobs um, out equitably, which is to say to include women, to include people of color, to include right. people of different economic backgrounds, a lot of them are going to need childcare. And what mm-hmm. what supporters have said to me is, um, if you don't include this requirement, the childcare need is going to be there, but then you're, their workers are going to come in to do these jobs and just displace everybody else who needs childcare in the community. So the idea is to be more intentional and say, okay, you need to think about making sure that there is capacity for your workers because they're going to need it. Um, And it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, every Intel plant is going to have on-site childcare. They could, that's one way they could do it. Or they could just sort of like interact with their local childcare agency. There's lots of them all over local communities and say, okay, like, tell us what's the supply look like? What needs to happen? You know, are there spots? Uh, And maybe they say, yeah, there's plenty of spots. Okay, great. We're good. We fulfilled this requirement. Or they'll say, no, we're a childcare desert. There's no spots. And then you have to think, then the chip maker is required to say, okay, so how am I going to fix this so that 
my workers can access childcare and not mm-hmm. displace everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that we're going to see it have this like huge impact where all of a sudden there's like a million more childcare facilities built by Intel. Um, but I do think it's a good way of saying the need is going to be there. So you as an employer need to be involved in making sure that it there is supply to meet it. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like kind of a new way of forcing employers to be part of that um, system. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens. I just don't, you know, it's nothing like the scale of say build back better. Like it's sure. Yeah. It's good. And, and nowhere near sufficient. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems they have some hope, right. Where if there's the, at least the will within democratic party or members, even Joe Biden, right. To sort of fund this stuff up. And it just was, you know, perhaps like with a different political, yeah horizon that a lot of this stuff could be done. Um, yeah, what the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was in this vision, I'm very interested in this vision of like full universal care, right? Okay. For very selfish reasons, right? I just got a kid <laughs> to kindergarten and now I have a three month old. Today yeah. is his first day. My wife went back to work today, you know, so oh, today wow. is the beginning of our doing yeah. it all over yeah. again. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a <laughs> you know, short I, break. I, I just need one more small cycle. <laughs> um, yeah, I had to, I basically expanded the amount of time before I can retire by like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't even want to think about how many years it was. But, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things I was thinking about was basically like, what, how, what role do you think sort of expanded leave might have in all of this? Because uh, yeah. the state of California provides, I think, sixty percent pay, be, and you can go beyond the amount that your employer does. Um, your employer, if I, for example, got twelve weeks through Condé Nast, but I think I could take up to like twelve more weeks uh, at sixty percent pay through the state of California. Um, obviously, sixty percent pay for some people is like crushing, right? But sixty percent pay for like that's also your childcare costs, right? Like for a lot of people as well, mm-hmm. right? Like it, like you, whatever you're getting chopped off the top, 40% would have been going to childcare anyway. In fact, mm-hmm. that's like, you kind of have to make a lot of money for it to only be 40, <laughs> only be 40%, right? So right. Um, like, like within that vision, like what, what role do you think? Like I, you know, every parent I know like waxes rhapsodic about like the Norwegian countries and it's like, oh, it's like that. and I got two years off or something like that, right? Like, I think that we can say like, that's difficult in America, right? But like, what, is, what do you think an appropriate amount of leave is and how does that sort of figure into, into this vision of, of universal care? It's a really good question. And um, I think sometimes I forget to talk about the paid leave part of it because they feel like two separate questions and they are absolutely the same continuum. Like who is yeah. caring for your baby and who is paying for that? Um, yeah. I also will, will point out California yeah. has um, changed its law so that low income workers get, I want to say it's like 90% of their wages now. So that oh, okay. um, because they weren't taking leave, like the lowest income workers in California yeah. were not taking yeah. leave. And so they fixed it so that, I mean, like you said, for when you're making very little money, losing 40% of your income is not actually doable. Um, I personally mm-hmm. think everyone should get their full wages on leave, but um, whatever. I'm glad that California moved closer to that, <laughs> particularly for low-income workers. Um, basically, yeah, this week- if you're going to go 90%, <laughs> you might as well just go the extra 10%. I know. <laughs> I know, just like give, give people... Well, I think most people, um, a lot of private employers give you your full pay, and I think a lot of people assume that that's what paid leave is, that someone is covering your wages while you have to, while you're forced to be home either physically or mentally and emotionally with your child. Um, and, and yet most, all the state level programs, none of them go to a hundred percent yet. Um, the, the, the sweet spot for duration has been described to me by many different kinds of people is about six months. Um, after six months, you know, babies are in a typically pretty healthy state. They've had a lot of their shots. They've been to a lot of their appointments. Um, it's when postpartum depression risks tend to drop off. Mm-hmm. Um, breastfeeding is pretty well established. And in fact, most babies are like starting solid foods. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, really long leaves, like say two years, if they're only taken by women, have been shown to be detrimental to yeah. their progress in the workforce. So I think six months is pretty good. I think you definitely need to figure out ways to build in incentives for men to take leave as well, because if 
only women are taking leave, then it becomes a penalty. And also just, there are so many benefits to men taking leave when their babies are little for their babies and for themselves and for society as a whole. Um, but I think that that's a really good duration. And then if, if you talk about people being at home with their babies for six months and they're the caretakers and they don't have to worry about income because they're getting paid, then you don't have to start thinking about childcare options until the babies are six months old. And mm-hmm. that is a very different world than a six week old baby. Um, oh you know, yeah. It's, it's, cr- yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's you know, the so needs expensive. better. Right. 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 <laughs> Right. right. You um, also like sort of understand what the baby needs. You understand, especially for first time parents, like uh, you have a better sense of what actually you're into. Right. Like for yeah. second kids, I don't know. Like our second kid has been like, like we're basic. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like <laughs> a, it's like dough proofing in, you know, like on the counter. Cause we've been through it, but for the first kid, everything was so stressful, you know? And yeah. if we, if we had had to make a childcare decision at six weeks, it's just like, we're still in a full on panic. And actually yeah. we were going to be in this yeah. panic for another 10 weeks at least, you know? And so it's <laughs> oh, like yeah. the, the age at which people have to make these decisions, many of them in places like New York before the child is even born, Right. Like, yeah. right? like yeah. that seems to be such a stressor, but also, you know, like, I don't know, it, it, it's also like one of these gaps, right, where you're just like, okay, what do we do? Preschool starts at two, right? So what do we do from, like, that's a year from like six months or three months to two, like, you know, like all these sorts of things definitely could be filled in universally or should be at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, and, and the Nordic model, even like the French model, again, like, the, there are universal options, but they aren't typically super robust until six months to a year old because people are home with their children caring for them on their own. Um, so, you know, that takes a huge, I mean, obviously that takes a huge policy shift in this country, like even state level programs, none of them yet, I believe, go past 12 weeks. There's been some that I've seen discussing 16 weeks at the most, um, which is four months. Mm-hmm. Um, so six months is like not even on the radar. And then um, a cultural shift where, you know, the idea is you are off from work for six months being with your child, and then you think about going back and childcare and all that. Like, a lot just would have to shift. But I think that that makes a lot more sense than saying, you know, I think it makes more sense than saying, okay, we're going to have universal childcare starting at, you know, week one, and we're going to force you back into work immediately, but at least there's a childcare option. Like, that's not great. That's also not great. Um, So it is all part of the same package. It's all part of the same continuum. I think it's really hard to in those in the earliest, earliest weeks and months to say that that is early childhood education. Like, in other words, I think it's beneficial for the workers also to push the time forward a little bit so that they can start talking about themselves as educators as opposed to just diaper changers. Oh, I mean, it's you know, just sheer survival in so those first hard, few weeks. Right. And like assuming all the liability for those that yeah. period as well. It's, I mean, there's a reason it's oh, such yeah. high cost. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you basically need one caretaker or more to, a child. to an infant. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the cost just, I mean, this is what childcare providers say is that they only can make it work for tiny babies if they also have much older kids because right. older kids are cheap and little kids are not. And this is also <laughs> part of the problem. As you start to build out universal preschool for four and three-year-olds, you're siphoning off the cheaper kids from the childcare providers, which mm. makes the finances for them even harder than they were before. Because oh, ba- babies are a money-losing proposition and preschoolers are a money-making really proposition. So you really mm-hmm. do, like all, you know, childcare is such a, like if there ever were a three-legged stool or maybe it's like a seven-legged stool, like you really can't knock one of the legs <laughs> out without <laughs> screwing up all the other ones. Um, mm. It really does need to be an entire ecosystem. Um, but yeah, I mean, caring for babies is so hard for anyone and so expensive. Yeah. Wow. One question I had is around immigration policy. Mm -hmm. I know that obviously most nations are aging, you know, we see it in really extreme cases like Japan, South Korea, Mm -hmm. um, Italy, but, um, you know, all over the world, we talk about silver tsunami, all that stuff. And, um, the care shortages are typically filled by low wage immigrant workers, and I'm curious, like in your reporting, what you have found about how child care and elder care needs affect immigration policy and vice versa, how like the immigration regime kind of is, you know, is shaping who gets into the workforce. Yeah, I mean, from what I've 
read and and heard um the the two are very intertwined because so many care workers are immigrants particularly i think in like the elder care world but also mm-hmm. in child care and if you are basically kneecapping people's ability to immigrate into the country you're just kneecapping that supply and it's not the case as in many other industries that native born workers are going to fill that gap um yeah. that in fact letting in more immigrants to fill these jobs is complementary and helps the economy grow. Um, so I, you know, the, the, the two just very much go hand in hand. Um, you know, I do think if you make this a better job, you can sort of widen the world of people, not, not to say that we want to displace immigrants, but that I think a whole number of different kinds of people will want to do this work if it's not Mm -hmm. really poorly paid and really poorly treated. Um, but immigrants, I think are always going to be part of the solution to filling in the caregiving gap. Um, in this country, like you said, as the population ages and as we're in this very acute childcare crisis, like we just need more people who want to do this work. Um, and we're, we're not getting enough supply from the people who are already here. Thanks. Okay. Well, Bryce, thank you for coming on. Like, you know, this is a great, and for me personally, very timely conversation. <laughs> yeah. I can't <laughs> believe you just started the whole journey again. Yeah. <laughs> We're on, we're literally on hour one of my oh. wife going back to work. So, um, oh, you guys must just be a mess this. then. I mean, I guess it's different with second babies, but I feel like the emo- that first hour is emotionally quite fraught. So, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I think this, like the difference between first and second for us at least has been so night and day that, um, and you know, the baby is generally very, like he's, he's very healthy and sleeps well and everything so it's okay but um the first yeah if this was the first one like we would you know there would be tears and i'd be there'd be much more despair (laughs) in my book i just don't know what i'm gonna do price tell me (laughs) (laughs) yeah and now you're like well there isn't any solution but at least i know what that looks like (laughs) yeah yeah exactly you're like listen i'm gonna have to apply to all these camps (laughs) in about four years and uh, i'm gonna have to just pay an incredible amount of money and uh there's gonna be like a seven day gap in the middle in august Uh i'm just like i don't know what i'm to do oh my you God. Know, and, that's you know, so it's miserable it's really miserable <laughs> it's miserable um okay bryce uh thank you for being on thank you, um, and we'll talk to you soon sounds good thank you guys